If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. God, grant our hearts to burn within us at this, the reading and preaching of your word at your holy presence. And grant the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened to the resurrection, truth, and reality. Thank you for loving us, for paying everything and more that we owed, for calling us to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. Hallelujah, the Lord is risen. Hallelujah. This is the feast of victory of our God. You like that? There's a hymn called that. I didn't make that up. But it is the feast of victory of our God. We have fasted for a long time. We've been fasting, we've been withholding, we've been reading more, we've been praying more, hypothetically. And this last week, we went through the agony of Holy Week. Just last Sunday night, reading here, the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John, yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Just after we had walked around the church with palm branches, acclaiming him and praising him. We walked with him to that upper room as he celebrated the Passover with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper. He washed his disciples' feet, giving a sign of the self-emptying he would do just a few hours later on the cross. Friday, we meditated on the 14 stations of the cross, walking the slow way of pain and agony. Yesterday, we remained quiet and did nothing. And today... We celebrate the Passover of God, from death to life. We celebrate how our Lord Jesus trampled down death by death. How he didn't just undergo agony and face this great world-ending sort of fight with the devil. He fought him and he won. So it's pretty awesome there's a reason that the church fathers forbade kneeling in the great 50 days of Easter. Because this is the feast of victory of our God. Today, here's my sermon. I have a lot of points, but don't let your eyes glaze over, my friends. My friends, my friends. As I've prayed and as, as I've walked Lent and done the things that I do in Lent, as I've been still this holy week, Here's what I feel like the Lord wants us to hear today. So if, if I've done my job and, and the Holy Spirit comes and speaks to you through my words, then there will be two things that happen. 
the first thing I want us to do is regain the wonder that the Son of God freely gave his life for us and on the third day rose again. How many times have we heard it? How many times have we said it? It's become so familiar. So I want us to regain the wonder. God wants us to regain the wonder. But not only that, I want us to recover the hope that this sacrifice and victory are making all things new. This sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross and the victory, it wasn't just a sad sacrifice and a pitiful story and a tragedy. Oh, poor Jesus. No! Jesus rose from the dead and conquered sin, Satan, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Now, the world's not complete, the battle's not completely over yet, is it? We'll look at that in just a moment. But he has won. The victory is Jesus. And by virtue of it being his victory, it is our victory as well. So let's look at recovering the hope first. What happens in this sacrifice and victory is that a new economy, a new operation of God is revealed to us. We realize that this agony that Jesus went through wasn't for naught, but there was a greater purpose, what might have been hidden to the disciples because they didn't remember. And the purposes are outlined beautifully by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you've got your bulletin or your Bible or your whatever, turn there to 1 Corinthians 15, 19 to 26. So this hidden plan of God now becomes clear because of the sacrifice of Jesus' life and because of his victory, because of his resurrection. He is making all things new. Well, the first thing we, that we see is that not only does Christ die, but he dies and rises again. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It is a fact. It is a reality. It is something that begs, that invites our faith or our rejection. We'll talk more about that in a second. The simple fact is, is that Christ has been raised from the dead, period. Now, this is not his ascension yet. That's about 40 days from now. Christ has been raised from the dead. Secondly, we see that Christ is what St. Paul says, the first fruits. Look at the second half of verse 20. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or of those who have died. So what does that tell us? If he's the first fruits, then others will come after him. Others will rise from the dead. Well, we know that Lazarus was raised from the dead, wasn't he? In John chapter 11, at a specific place in Bethany. But we know that he also died again. But Lazarus too will be raised, as well as all of creation. And those who are in Christ will be raised to life. And those who are not in Christ will be raised to death. Christ he died and was raised again. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In the death of Adam, we have death. Because Adam, our father, if you will, our ancestor, because he and Eve sinned, we are sinful. 
because they died as a result of eating of that, tr- that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we also die. But in Christ shall all be made alive. Do you he- did you notice that in the song we sing? And did you notice that in this, just the simple phrase that there's a sharing that we have? We share in Adam's death, but we also share in Christ's resurrection. This is a reality that's maybe beyond our simple pondering at this moment. But it's a spiritual reality. Remember on Thursday night at Monday Thursday, we talked about the reality of a sacrament. That it invites us to remember a past event so that we can be present to God who is always present to us. And it looks forward to this future creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Being united with Christ in his resurrection allows us by faith to participate in these sacraments. For Jesus to be always present to us because he is truly absent from us after he ascended. He is always present to us, especially when we gather, especially at the feast of the victory of our God on this Easter day. These are all reasons to recover hope. Death will be fully and finally destroyed along with every other rule and authority. Verse 24 to 26 Then comes the end, St. Paul says, when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now just take a minute. There are a lot of rules and authorities and powers that are good. They do good things. They help make things happen. Clean water, etc. But there are also a lot of rulers and authorities and powers that bring about even greater sinfulness, even greater brokenness in this life. We've been talking about this since Advent, that everything broken will be made whole. And St. Paul says here that the death of Jesus is this moment that pulls the trigger on this timeline that is moving like a train running down a track to this destiny. And so we have hope because every rule and authority and power will be put under subjection under Christ. Verse 25, the last, or, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Alluding to Psalm 110 and verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We will die. March 6th at noon and 7 p.m., what did we do? We came here and we put ashes on our forehead. And Chris and I told you, remember that you are dust and to dust you will return. We're all going to die. But Jesus will completely and totally conquer death. We have no idea how amazing, how mind-blowing, how real this reality is. Therefore, because of all these things, because we're united to Christ in his resurrection, Because even though we die, we are raised with him. Because he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and therefore other people are going to be raised with him. And because he died and was raised again, because of all those things, we have hope. These realities in this new economy of God touch the heart of our existence of life and death, of what it means to be human. We know that because Paul writes it in verse 19. We know it experientially now. We know it existentially. But Paul also says it. Look at the very beginning of this passage. 
Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So what Paul's saying is that Christianity, the reality of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, isn't just so that we'll feel better today and tomorrow, and that we can be overcomers today and tomorrow. We'll do those things. But there is an ultimate, there's a finality to the hope that we have in Christ that overcomes not just this thing and that thing and that thing and that thing, but overcomes everything. And if we don't hope in Christ for that everything, if we don't hope in Christ for that life after life after death, did you notice that? Paul says there's a death and then you fall asleep. That's the life after death in Christ. And then there's another life after death. Theologian Tom Wright writes about this a lot in his book, Surprised by Hope. You should read it. But this resurrection is the life after life after death. We have to hope in Christ. We have to take our eternal destiny into account and trust completely in him. And this has everything to do with recovering the hope that this sacrifice and victory are making all things new. Now, let's talk about regaining the wonder. What was the wonder about? The wonder that the Son of God freely gave his life for us and on the third day rose again. Now, I'm talking to me who has been around Christianity and the gospel for a while, maybe not as long as some of the others of you as I look around and see. But there is a point to where the familiarity of the empty tomb elicits from us a heartfelt shrug. Easter. Here's my point. We are no longer perplexed or frightened by the empty tomb. We have remade Easter in our own image. And it is no longer something wonderful. It is no longer something that perplexes us. It is no longer something that begs our complete and whole devotion. G.K. Chesterton, in the introduction of his book, The Everlasting Man, talks about all the stories that are never wrote are always the best stories that he wrote. But in one of those stories that he never wrote, he was going to talk about a young boy who lived on this farm and the boy longed to go to a far off land and find a giant and find the proof that the giant lived and all of these things. And so the boy left. He left the farm. He left the village. He went away and he got just far away that he could look back and see his village. And what did he notice? That the house and the farm where he lived made out the edge of a giant's shield. He was so close to the reality of this giant that he couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. Guys, we've been close to Christianity. It has saturated our culture, and that's good. That has produced so much good fruit, so many good things and blessings and benefits, so much for the common good. But we might just need to wake ourselves up. We might just need to be perplexed and frightened and question, but notice, not question to put it away, but let's see what these young ladies did that day of resurrection. Uh, Luke 24 in your bulletin, if you've got it. The first thing I want you to notice to regain wonder is to be present. Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. 
Now, these women had a sort of filial, relational faith and belief in Jesus. We know, we're going to see later that they had forgotten what Jesus said. But they were living in faith as they went to the tomb. It's the first day of the week. The Sabbath had gone. They're going to show kindness to this dead body, just as a couple of weeks ago in John 12, we talked about how this Mary showed kindness to Jesus before he died by anointing his feet with her hair, this pound of pure nard. And now they're going to show kindness to the Lord Jesus in his death. So they're not operating as antagonists of Jesus. Does that make sense? They're coming to the tomb as faithful friends. But they don't get it, do they? And can we blame them? Would you have got it? I wouldn't have. I'm the first person to freak out about something. So let me just go on record to say that. So the first thing that we can do to regain the wonder of this sacrifice and resurrection of the Son of God. (laughs) And that is the power of technology. The first thing that we can do is be present. Look at verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They were present, and what did they see? Nothing! Nothing. Jesus is gone. And friends, the task for us, and it's not something that we work up for ourselves psychologically, perhaps. It's something that we ask the Lord to do with us and for us. But in our meditations, maybe even in the work of Lent and Holy Week, we learn this. But the task for us is to see anew, like we're seeing it for the first time. Again, I hope you'll indulge me as I quote G.K. Chesterton, again in the introduction of The Everlasting Man. He says, we see things fairly when we see them first. We must try to recover the candor and wonder of the child. We must try to recover the candor and wonder of the child the unspoiled realism and objectivity of innocence. Or if we cannot do that, we must try at least to shake off the cloud of mere custom and see things as new, if only by seeing it as unnatural. In other words, we have to see the resurrection for what it is. This ain't natural. It is not normal to go to a graveyard and not find the dead body there. See it. We want to be present. We want to see it anew for the first time. But not only do we want to be present, we want to be perplexed and frightened. Verse 5, or verse 4 and 5, excuse me. While they were perplexed about this, these young women, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? When was the last time your relationship with God or the truth of who God is or something in the scriptures or a moment in worship or in our liturgy caused you to be perplexed or frightened? Even if you allowed yourself to be perplexed or frightened, what would you have done? It's very American for us to what? Pull it together 
Everything's okay. I'm not perplexed. I'm not frightened. Don't be afraid. There's a sense in which, a sense in which God is terrifying. He is good, Mr. Beaver told Lucy, but he is not safe. This is not the God of our own making. This is the God of the universe who will conquer death completely and totally. So to regain the wonder, we want to be present to God. To regain the wonder, embrace the perplexing of the faith. Wrestle with it. Doubt with it, but don't doubt as a way not like these women. The women perhaps were doubting, but they were doubting in the presence of going towards Jesus. There's a doubting and a casting aspersions that's a moving away from Jesus. You can do that too, but that's less profitable. That is not the way that leads to life. By all means, be perplexed, be frightened. And for some reason, God has allowed St. Bart's to be a place where people have the opportunity to do this, where people can ask the perplexing questions, where people can live into the frightening realities. And it's, it's something sovereign that God has done by his Holy Spirit. It's, it's part of our values of authenticity, of wholeness and healing. Unless we face the fears that we have, even the deep questions about God, unless we face those, we can't move through that death to resurrection. It speaks to our value of hospitality. We want to connect with the people of East Dallas and beyond so that God might draw them to himself. So hopefully you've felt safe to be perplexed and frightened, but I want to invite you to continue to do so in this space of faith. So we're present, we're perplexed, and lastly, we want to remember his words and go back to life. Verse 8, or excuse me, verse 6. The angel said, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you. Gosh, that sounds like something I would say kind of sarcastically. Remember while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Guys, that's why God gave us the Holy Scriptures. That's why we read so much of the Bible in our services. That's why we read it in morning prayer, so that we can remember. That's why we have holy sacraments, so that we can remember. And it's not just memory recall. It's making these past realities present to us now by faith, by the power of the Spirit, through the risen and ascended Christ. Remember Oh, Moses, did you bring us out here just to kill us? Just kill us now. We'd rather go back to Egypt, worship their false gods, and eat their food and do their slave work. How quickly Israel forgot. Can God set a table for us out in the desert? I mean, he delivered us. He killed all their firstborn because we put the blood of the lamb over our doorpost, and he led us through the Red Sea. But can he give us food out here and water from the rock? They didn't remember. And that's why St. Paul writes, hey, they were baptized in the cloud and in the fire and through the sea in Moses. This is 1 Corinthians 10. He says, nevertheless, with many of them, God was not pleased. Remember, God wants us to remember. And then they remembered. Did you see that in verse 8? 
And they remembered. And what was their immediate impulse? They went back. They went back to life. And they told people about it. They went back to life, to the people, to share the good news that Jesus is not dead. Did they understand the theology and the reality, the cosmic battle that had been won in this resurrection? No, probably not. Not at that moment. But they couldn't help in this moment of wonder, in this moment of going from perplexed and frightened to understanding, and later we're going to hear how his disciples, their hearts burned within them as he explained the scriptures to them. And how he was revealed to them at the breaking of the bread. That's the reality we're called to live in, people of St. Bart's and, and guests tonight. That is the reality we're called to live in. Does that mean life is always going to be awesome? No. Does that mean we're going to doubt? We're still going to doubt. We're still going to be perplexed and frightened. But we've regained the wonder of the resurrection. It's no longer this tame reality. Something that we... Shrug at. It is the watershed moment of history. It causes us to recover hope, not just for this life, but for the life to come. And it invites our meditation and our awe this Easter season. Let us pray. God, we love you. Forgive us for being slow, slow to trust you, quick to forget, and slow to remember. We thank you for your disciples who went to that tomb on that first day of the week. We thank you for St. Paul who could write about these things so clearly. We thank you for your son, our Savior. We marvel, just like St. Peter did, we marvel at the resurrection. We don't completely understand it, but we put our whole faith and trust in not just the resurrection, but in you, O oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this to you, O oh God, in your victory. Amen.